Well, if you have your Bible with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1272. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Titus, and for the last several weeks, we have been studying the first section in Titus chapter 2, and uh, we will finish that section this morning, Lord willing. We'll begin reading in verse number one. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, instructions to the old and to the young. Titus chapter two, beginning in verse one. And this is what the word of God says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. As I was considering how to begin this sermon and thinking of the subject matter that I would be teaching and speaking to you about today, I decided to begin the sermon the same way I began this section four weeks ago with these words. It seems very fitting and appropriate. We live in a culture drowning in gender confusion. Social engineers dominate the media, our educational system, and other strategic places of influence, all with the goal of eliminating the gender distinctions and differences that God has created into human beings. And as a result, the lines have become blurred, and many are struggling to understand what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Men and women are the unique creations and image bearers of the one true and living God. We are distinct by divine design because God has made us male and female. And this divine distinction between men and women, even within the church, is under immense pressure to conform to the cultural currents of the day. That's why it's imperative that we hear, that we understand, and that we obey what God has revealed in His Word concerning the differences between men and women. And to that end, Titus chapter 2 is a key and helpful passage on the subject. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs the words of this text. For in these verses, Paul gives God's instructions for the roles of men and women in the church and in the home 
in a clear and concise manner. In this passage, Paul paints a picture of a community where age and experience matter, where there are unique challenges and temptations in every role and in every generation, where older men and women are teaching younger men and women, where the young seek the counsel of the aged and where the aged set an example for the young. And the driving force of these verses that we've read together this morning is one word, the word discipleship. Older men need to disciple younger men. And older women need to disciple younger women. And this discipling of the younger by the older is a clear biblical pattern that has been neglected for generations. The church of Jesus Christ needs a revival of Titus chapter 2. And so we'll study Paul's instructions for the old and the young. And this morning we're picking up where we left off last week, thinking about his instructions to younger women. And in verse 4 and 5 he says... And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. I will submit to you this morning, you will not find another passage of Scripture that is more vehemently attacked and denied than this passage of Scripture. It is ridiculed, it is reinterpreted by people both inside and outside of the church. And yet, it is the word of God. And what was true in Paul's day in these words is true in our day, whether you like it or not. That's not the issue. The issue is the authority of the word of God over our lives, over our homes, and over our churches. And in verses 4 and 5... Paul specifies the good that older women are to teach the younger women. And these words in these verses have a dual function. They teach older women what the curriculum is that they should use for the younger women. And they also help the younger women understand the kind of Christian women they should aspire to be. There is also an implication in these verses. If an older woman is going to effectively teach and train a younger woman in all of these matters, it makes sense that an older woman is living these truths in her own life. And as I reminded you last week, in this text, Paul is dealing with what is the traditional case. Paul held a high view of singleness, And he saw the gift of singleness as a unique opportunity to serve God fully with one's life. And yet, he recognized that most men and women would marry and have children. And so we're examining these words in that light and in that context. And in verses 4 and 5, he issues six instructions to younger women. Last week, we looked at the truth that women are to love their husbands. And so this morning we pick up with the second on the list. Women are to love their children. And as with love for their husbands, love for their children is not an option. 
It is a command. And ladies, would you notice carefully with me the text? And would you notice the order of the instructions in the text? Women are to love their husbands first and their children second. And there is a reason for this order. If you reverse the order and love your children ahead of your husband, first of all, you are disobeying God. And then secondly, when your children leave the home and you have an empty nest, you will have no marriage. You must love your spouse before you love your children. And Paul's admonition here is inclusive. Young women are to love their children with a limitless, unconditional love. And while this love is limitless and unconditional, it is not a love that overindulges children. It is not a love that always allows children to get their own way. And it is not a love that refuses to exercise appropriate discipline when it is needed. The book of Proverbs has a wealth of wisdom teaching young parents how they should love and lead and provide limits for their children. And in the context of a mother and her child, I'm going to give you two verses from Proverbs that really strike at the heart of Paul's instructions concerning women loving their children. In Proverbs chapter 29, in verse 15, this is what the Bible says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. And so he's teaching us as parents that the rod of correction and the act of reproof or correcting and training and instructing your children, the end result of exercising the rod and the reproof is that you raise children of wisdom. That the rod and the reproof produce wisdom in the life of your children. But now listen to the second half of the verse. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And what Proverbs is giving you is a look into the future as a mom, as a dad, as a parent. And Proverbs is teaching you that if you leave your child to their self, if you refuse to follow God's pattern of parenting with the rod and the reproof, even though the world says that that is harmful to your children, God actually says it gives your children wisdom. And God is teaching you ahead of time that if you'll follow his instructions in your parenting, you will be spared shame when your children get older and you look at their lives. But if you eliminate the rod and if you eliminate reproof and you let children go their own way, your life will be full of shame and hardship over the condition of your children. Here's the second verse, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. It breaks a mother's heart to see the foolishness of her children. And I hadn't planned to say this, but I'm just going to insert this parenthetically. If you're a son or a daughter in this room, and you know the way that you're living is contrary to the way that you've been raised by your mom and dad, 
Would you hear the truth of this verse and allow it to catch your attention that by your rebellion, by your sin, by your disobedience, you are breaking and crushing your mother's heart? And would you repent and turn away from your sin and your rebellious ways and turn back to the truth of the gospel that your parents tried to put in your heart? And so as young women love their children, they love them physically and emotionally and educationally and morally and socially and spiritually. They are to always have their eyes fixed on Christ and pointing their children's eyes to Christ. In word and in deed, young mothers are to gently and winsomely put before their children the love of God and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of their children. They are to speak to their children with grace and with truth, showing their children that they have a need to confess their sin and to turn from their sin, and to receive and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is the greatest task of parenting, to point your children to Christ. And that is to be the focus of a mother's love for her children. And children, if I could speak a word to you this morning, you should thank God that your mom and your dad, they love you enough to bring you to church on Sunday and have you sit under the preaching and the hearing and the singing and the praying of the word of God and to expose you to the truth and the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. The leaders of this church are praying for you on a regular basis that you would recognize your sin and turn from your sin and trust in Christ and believe on him for your salvation. Your parents are praying on a regular basis that you would do that. Your church family is praying on a regular basis that you would do that. And your parents' gift of showing you the truth of the word of God in Jesus Christ is the greatest act of love and gift they could ever give you. And so you should thank them for doing that. So older and younger women, do you love your children? Or do you resent them? Do you complain about it? Do you grow impatient with them? Do you desire to get away from them? You can't wait till they leave. What is your honest heart attitude to your children? Do you need to ask God to help you love them more? To be more patient? To be more kind? Have you studied your children in such a way that you know what makes each one of them individually feel loved? Are you more concerned about being their friend than you are their mother? In your parenting, older and younger women, are you in danger of overindulging your children by withholding discipline, always letting them get their way, and refusing to impose limits? Or in your parenting, are you more in danger of crushing your children under the weight of unrealistic expectations and discipline without love? 
older and younger women in your parenting, is church and the spiritual life of your children a priority? Or are you teaching your children by example and by the way that you run your family that sports and other activities are more important than the worship of God and the gathering of God's people? What you model for them in these young age will be their approach to God in worship when they get older. And if you teach them now that everything else is more important than church and the worship of God, do not be surprised when they are adults that they have no time or interest for God. You have established the pattern in their life. They're just following what you taught them to do. And for those women who are unable to have children, are you trusting God's plan and purpose for your family? And have you considered the difference you can make in the lives of the children in your church family? There is a senior adult woman in this church who, when she was physically able, adopted family after family when their newborns came into the world and came and sat in their living room and held the babies so mothers could take care of the other children and took them for walks so that moms could have a break. Do you realize the impact and the influence that you can have in the lives of other children and be a blessing to other moms at the same time? And for those women whose children have grown, would you consider, would you seriously consider this morning how you can help encourage and love single mothers who are worn out by the time they get their children in the sanctuary for worship? Would you consider sitting with them and helping them wrestle and corral the children? There is an opportunity for ministry and loving children for the young and the old alike. And older women and younger women are to love their children. Number three, women are to be self-controlled. And this should sound familiar to you. It is the same word that is used in chapter 1 and verse 8 of Perspective Elders. In chapter 2 and verse 2 of older men, a form of it is used in chapter 2 and verse 3 for older women. And in chapter 2 and verse 6 for younger men. And here's the point. Every single person in the church should exhibit the quality of self-control. This word emphasizes the possession of mental and emotional composure. It means to be focused, to not be distracted or impulsive, to be temperate and disciplined. The idea is that of moderation and avoiding extravagance and overindulgence in any area of life. It is to refrain from foolish, careless living. And Paul's instructions here to younger women is a reminder that the church needs level-headed women just like the church needs level-headed men and just like the church needs level-headed leaders. And so in a simply stated comprehensive command, Paul is challenging Titus to direct the older women to teach and train the younger women to harness the enthusiasm of their youth in a clear-headed, disciplined, 
Godward direction. And like his counsel to older men and younger men, Paul's instructions here to older women and younger women is in connection to the temptations that they face. And we already looked at some of those last week. And in this context, it would be self-controlled in your reverence and in your behavior. Be self-controlled in your slander. Be self-controlled with the words that you use and the conversations that you have. Be self-controlled in your purity and in your actions. Be self-controlled in your kindness and in your work at home. Be self-controlled in your submission to your husbands. And the implication from this command is clear. It's abundant. It is incumbent upon every single believer to make sure that their life is not dominated by anything or anyone other than God. That we are to live self-controlled, sober-minded lives. And so the application here is pretty simple, isn't it? Is, is there an area in your life where you're lacking self-control? Number four, I think, I've already lost count. Women are to be pure. The word pure refers primarily to moral purity, and especially in this context, to sexual purity and to marital faithfulness. It can also include purity of dress, purity of mind, purity of speech and purity of heart it is describing the whole inner and outer life of both older women and younger women they are to be pure peter gives us a description of what this looks like in first peter chapter 3 verses 3 and 4 do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with, imperishable, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And do you see what Peter does? He contrasts the external with the internal. And he says to every woman, don't just focus on the external. It is temporary. It is fading. In your teens and 20s, you think it'll never fade. When you get in your 30s, you realize it will fade. When you get in your 40s, it has faded. When you get in your 50s, there is no turning back. So don't stay in the external. Make sure you are giving proper attention to the internal. Because listen to what Scripture says. The internal is what will never perish. It is the imperishable beauty. And when God looks at the internal of your life, Peter says, when it is in accord with his word, he sees you as precious. You may have wrinkles you may have lost your hair everything may be going wrong for you externally and God would look at you and say you are beautiful you are precious you are godly and that's what matters and just by the way men you don't look the same way you did when you got married internal over the external 
a life of purity. And this instruction, listen carefully, friends, it applies both to the unmarried and to the married. For those who are unmarried, this is a command to keep yourself pure until your wedding day. It is a command to fight and protect for your purity. And to the married, it's a reminder that being married does not exempt you from sexual temptation. That as a married woman, you must guard yourself from becoming attracted to another man and from falling into adultery, even, even if your marriage is difficult and your husband doesn't love you the way he should. It is a warning to guard your life from these temptations and sins. And while we often think of purity being a problem for men, it is clear from this text that purity is a problem for women as well. I will remind you this morning that the snare of pornography is not limited to men. All you have to do is look at the statistics and there's an increasing number of women year after year who are finding themselves enslaved to this sin. And so older women, younger women, is your life pure? Is it free from all forms of pornography? Videos, magazines, Instagram, books. Is your life free from these sins? Are you pure in your dress? Or do you dress to get everybody's attention in the room? Are you pure in the motives of your heart, in your speech, in your action? Are you striving by the grace of God with his help to be a woman of imperishable beauty? I can't even tell you what number we're on now. Here's the next one. Women are to be working at home. Now I want to say at the outset of this point that you need to listen carefully to what I'm about to say so that you don't misquote me after church. Secondly, I want to say a word to single mothers. As you think about this instruction, I want you to know that you are keenly seen and prayed for by the leadership of this church. And I want you to know that you have the most difficult job in the world of being a mother and a provider and a homemaker. And I want to remind you this morning that this text is not intended by God to make you feel guiltier than you already do. This text is intended by God to feed you and to instruct you and to encourage you in your noble task of motherhood. Now for the whole church, I want you to understand under this principle that in first century cultures, the home was the domain of the woman. And this instruction by Paul would not have sounded foreign or oppressive to the congregations in Crete. Paul was not defining or limiting a woman's place in society. He was merely addressing the women of the church where they were in society. And Paul is instructing older women to help younger women 
understand the importance and high priority which God has designed into the roles of mother, wife, and homemaker. So what is he saying when he says in the text that women are to be working at home? Well, the text literally means that you are to be home workers or you are to be busy at home. Now, this text does not mean that women should never have a job outside of the home. That's not what the text is saying. However, however, this text does mean that a woman must have the right priorities. And those priorities are her relationship to God, her relationship to her husband, her relationship to her children, her relationship to her home, and then, and only then, her relationship to her career. One commentator said, Paul isn't so much defining the only place a wife and a mother can work as he is defining the home as the number one workplace, the first priority for her energy and her work. It's not the only place. It's the first place. That's the point of the text. A wife has a responsibility before God to ensure that her home is properly managed. She is to take care of the things in the home in such a way that it is a place of refuge for her husband and for her children. This is her priority, her first priority. Tim Chester in his book, Titus for You, said this, it is not that younger women cannot have a career but if they are wives and mothers, home is the primary place where they are to serve. The call to be busy at home is not said just to counter the temptation to be lazy at home, but also to counter the temptation to be over busy elsewhere. Did you hear that? That's the point. It is to counter your life from being over busy elsewhere. And, he says, to look for a life beyond the life that God has given you. That's it. It is to serve as guardrails in your life so that you don't neglect the most important things of life and your God-given roles and responsibilities. So it means that a woman may choose to have a career outside of the home. She may choose to volunteer at her church. She may choose to volunteer at another Christian organization. She may choose to volunteer at the hospital. She may choose to be involved in the school. But her home must always be the number one priority. And listen, dear ladies, the world is never going to say to you what this text says to you and what I just said to you. And if you're boiling inside right now, let me just help you deal with that. Your problem is not with me and what I've just said. Your problem is with the Bible sitting in your lap, open in front of you. Because I've not said anything different than what God has said to you. And I will say this, that any woman who makes career status or financial advantage a higher priority in her life than the welfare of her marriage and her children and her home is not aligned with this passage of Scripture. You're just not. 
So older and younger women, is your marriage, parenting, and home life receiving your utmost attention, or is it honestly getting your leftovers? You have to answer that truthfully. Have you convinced yourself that your worth is found in your accomplishments outside of the home rather than your identity in Jesus Christ? Does your mindset regarding your home need to change? What changes in your home need to happen to make your life aligned with this text of Scripture and your home the number one priority in your life? Honestly, where is your heart in relation to this text. Older women, would you look around the church and find the single moms who are being crushed by the weight of managing a full work schedule and the struggles and never-ending work of single parenting and the feelings of guilt and inadequacy? And would you come alongside of these young moms with prayer, with encouragement, with friendship, and with help? Older women, would you take time to teach and train the younger women of this church family in these matters. You have years of wisdom in managing a home. Why would you hoard it to yourself? And younger women, do you need to ask for help, for counsel, for encouragement? Why not humble yourself and approach a godly older woman in this congregation and say, help. Well, the next one, whatever, wherever we are, women are to be kind. Kindness is foundational to every life and to every relationship, both inside and outside of the home. And when he uses the word kind, he's speaking of a lack of irritability. He's speaking of being warm-hearted Helpful, tolerant, charitable, charitable, considerate, and thoughtful, especially in the context of all of the instructions that we've already looked at in verse 3, verse 4, and the beginning of verse 5. You are to be kind as you carry out all of these duties. And ladies, here's the reality. Husbands and children are frustrating. Husbands and children are difficult. Husbands and children, try your patience. And the domestic duties of life are exhausting and never-ending. And if that were not enough, add responsibilities outside of the home, and it's easy to see how you as a woman can become irritated and harsh towards the people you say you love the most. And that's why I need to remind you this morning, older and younger women, that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit that God produces in you. And he produces this kindness in you through a work of his grace. He can change a cold heart, a stony heart, a hard heart, an impatient heart, an irritated heart, a harsh heart. And he can replace all of those things with kindness. 
It is a fruit of the spirit of the work of the grace of God in your life. And do you know that Paul speaks to this work of grace and how it changes us and makes us kind in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5? He says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is teaching us in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, that the goodness and the loving kindness, the kindness of God, appeared to us in the birth of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God in his mercy and grace and love and compassion didn't save us because of anything good in us or because of anything that we did. He saved us because of his grace and his compassion towards us in our sin. He extended his mercy to us when we could do nothing to change our condition. And when he saved us, he deposited inside of us the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God works in our lives to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so being kind and fulfilling all of these other responsibilities in this text that I'm showing you this morning isn't about you working harder. It isn't about you striving harder and wearing yourself out more. It's actually about you turning in full and complete surrender and dependence to the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving his mercy and grace that he displayed for you on the cross when he died for your sins. And that when you receive Christ as your Savior, he begins to work in your heart and change your heart towards kindness. And once you're a Christian woman, you can pray and ask God to continue to develop this loving kindness in your life so that it will overflow into the lives of those around you. Well, if I haven't made you mad enough already, here's the next one. Women are to be submissive to their own husbands. The word submit literally means to arrange under, to line up under the leadership of another. It is a military term. Submission is a key word in the New Testament, and it is used in a variety of contexts. It is used in relation to the church and Christ. It is used in relation to Christian citizens and the government. It is used in relation to Christian slaves and their masters. And contrary to the world's opinion, a wife's submission to her husband is not an oppressive imposition. It is an obedience to God. And it is the way God designed it from the beginning of creation. Listen to Genesis chapter 2 in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's it. When you are married, you are God's gift of grace to your husband. You are a helper uniquely fit for him. There's not another woman like you in all the world. You're uniquely fit for this man that God has given you. 
And your submission to your husband and your husband's love for you as his wife is the clear teaching of the New Testament. And it is a picture of Christ and his relationship to the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When a wife submits to her husband, and a husband lovingly leads his wife, that marriage pictures Christ in his sacrificial love and death for the church and the church's reception of Christ's work on the cross on their behalf and their lining up under the leadership and the authority of Christ. And so the husband's role is that of a loving leader within the home, and it's the role of the wife to line up under that leadership. Ladies, this in no way implies that you are inferior to your husband. It is not about status. It is about role and function and calling in the marriage and in the home. And men, this text never, ever, ever gives you the right to be a tyrant, to be a bully, to be abusive and oppressive in your home. If you're doing that, you are disparaging the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that in his love for the church, it is a selfless love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a giving love. It is a love that elevates the church. And if you're not loving and leading your wife by elevating her, making sure she knows how precious and important she is in the family, you've got this text backwards. No wonder she's having so much difficulty submitting to you. You should try living with yourself. A wife should never submit to her husband when obedience to him would violate the word of God, when it would compromise her relationship with Christ, when it would violate her conscience, when it would compromise the care, the nurture, and the protection of her, and ch of her children, and when it would enable her husband's sin. Nor should a wife ever, ever submit to physical, sexual, emotional, or verbal abuse. That is not what submission means. Jesus Christ would never abuse his church. A husband's leadership in the home should be characterized by the sacrificial love of Christ. And would you notice in the text, both men and women notice in the text, that this command of submission is given in the middle voice. It means that a woman was to submit herself. Submission is not something that a husband demands from his wife. And I would just say to you, sir, I've said it before, and I will say it again. If you have to tell your wife that you're the leader and that she needs to submit to you, you're not. A leader never has to say they're the leader. They lead, and people follow. And if you have to identify yourself as the leader, 
there's somebody else in your home that's leading and it's not you and it is not your place to demand her submission it is your place to love her and do you know what I've found if I will concentrate on loving my wife the way Christ loved the church and the way I'm commanded by scripture I got a full plate I don't have time to think about submission all I have time to think about is how I'm loving her and I've also found that if I'll concentrate on loving her submission won't be an issue They were willingly lined up under a leadership where they know they are loved, nurtured, cared for, where they know you'd be willing to die for them with a bullet and where you would be willing to die for them by taking out the trash. That's the kind of love that submits. And ladies... This is what Susan Hunt said in Spiritual Mothering. When a woman realizes the power of her loving acceptance of her husband and makes an all-out commitment to be his completer and not his competitor, he reaches heights he never could have attained without her. Oh, if you'll stop competing with him and just complete him, he'll be a different man. He'll be a different man. Older and younger women, are you refusing to live in the assigned roles that God has given you in your marriage and in your home? Maybe you say, Pastor, this all sounds really good, but I've got a passive husband at home that refuses to lead. And if, if, he doesn't, if I don't step up and lead, nothing will happen. Well, I would say to you, ma'am, pray for him. Pray that God would work in his life in such a way to empower him to fulfill his role as a loving leader in your home. And talk to him gently and kindly about your need for him to step up and lead you and your family. Maybe some of you women need to give your husband a chance to lead. You may be so aggressive in the home that he's willing to take a back seat. And you've never given him an opportunity to lead because you're always jumping out in front of him. Maybe you need to step backwards and see if he fills in the vacuum. And for those women under the weight of ungodly leadership, I would say to you today, would you trust that God's word is true? Would you trust that it's true? And that as 1 Peter chapter 3 says, you can have a major influence on your ungodly husband by your walk with God and the way you live your life and the way you obey him. And that God would be able to use you and what he's done in your life to win your husband to Christ without you ever saying a word. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Go read it, and you'll find it there. God's word is true, ladies. You have to trust him that he'll use your life in that way with your husband. Well... We bring all of this to a completion because I know you're ready to be off the hot seat and so am I. Why, look at your Bible, why should older women practice, teach, and train the younger women in all of these matters? Why should they do it? Look at the end of verse 5, that the word of God would not be reviled. What's the point? Well, Paul's not talking about exclusively the written scriptures. 
he's talking about the central message of the scriptures, which is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's his point. Older men are to train younger men. Older women are to train younger women so that salvation through faith in Jesus Christ would not be reviled. It would not be blasphemed. It would not be defamed. It would not be scandalous to the world. What is at stake in Titus chapter 2, friends? If you haven't heard anything else, would you hear this? Like, don't close your Bible. Listen. Listen to what I'm telling you. This is the whole point. And if you don't get this, you miss the emphasis and the point of Titus chapter 2. And we've spent four weeks on it. How can we miss the point? We've got to get the point. And here's the point. What is at stake in Titus chapter 2 is the reputation of the faith that we claim to have, the reputation of the gospel message which we are required to proclaim, the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the reputation of the very Word of God. And Paul is saying that when unbelievers look at our marriages, and they look at our homes, and they look at our lives, and if they don't see Titus chapter 2, they're going to see what we profess, they're going to see the Bible, they're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to see the talk of salvation as scandalous as blasphemous, as foolish. They're going to look at us and say, you claim all these things about what a wonderful Savior you have. He can't even change the way you live your life, and He can't change your marriage, and He can't change your home. Why in the world should I believe in Jesus? That's the point. That is the point. So what happens in the home? through a woman's character, and through a woman's care. Ladies, it is a powerful tool for the advancement of the gospel. That's the point. When you live like this, when you care like this in your living and in your service, you will picture the church and its relationship to Christ and you will testify to the world that the Lord Jesus Christ changed my life, changed my marriage, changed my home. And what Christ did for me, Christ can do for you. The discipling of the younger by the older is a biblical pattern that has been neglected to the detriment of the church. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs a revival of Titus chapter 2. Older men, discipling younger men. Older women, discipling younger women. Would you pray? Would you join me and pray that Titus chapter 2 would not just be something that we've studied for four Sundays together in church, but it would be something that would become the DNA of our church. And that when we think about First Baptist Church of Wheeling, we think about Titus chapter 2. And would you, would you join with me in praying that God would show you how you can live these truths in a practical way? The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Let's pray.